take me up I watched and learned How to fly No navigation system Beyond our eyes Watching Always went wrong In the same place Where the river splits Towards the sea Welcome back everyone This is part two of the Directors Club Year End Wrap Up Podcast The Best of 2013 What you heard just now was my favorite song of the year, which is Small Plane by the great Bill Callahan. And uh, it had a lot of resonance for me, since it kind of captures the feeling I I shared with my uh, dear friend and roommate as we relocated from Chicago to Grand Rapids. Uh, There's just something about uh, the progression of the song and the lyrics themselves that really uh, sums up a lot of what I went through this past year. And... Bill Callahan's become one of my top five favorite songwriters of all time. So let's move right along to the show here since we have a lot to cover still. And please be sure to stay till the very end since I put together a montage of voicemails that did not play during the actual recording with Patrick. But we wanted to include your thoughts. And so just have no fear if you thought we'd forgotten about you in the midst of the show. You are included at the very end. So stick around. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Thank you. Okay, why don't we finally, I think uh, people have been waiting on bated breath to hear voices other than our own. I'd say so. I would agree. Here's a, uh, well, I got to start off because we all know how much I love the uh, Google Voice transcription bot. It says, hey, Patrick. Hey, Jim, this is June Kim. I'm just sending you a voicemail order. I'm pretty sure that is not the case, but let's actually listen to the voicemail to see what he's really saying there. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Jim. This is June Kim. I'm just sending you a voicemail for the Best of 2013 episode, and I have only 100 minutes per month, so this is very valuable time. So I'm going to try to go fast. So I don't have much to talk about aside from how much I hate Man of Steel and how uh, what a ugly, hateful movie it is. But it really comes down to the I don't I don't think Patrick you finished it because it's so ridiculously silly. That's it true. It begins with the line, what is it? This council has been disbanded and that's just you know, that made my brother laugh. You know. Anyway. So this is a movie that's so com- completely confused about what, what it wants to be that it does it sets up all this stuff that it wants to try to do and in the last what ten minutes it takes it all back trying to you know, give you a happy happy ending. But I think uh, ironically, like the movie would be actually kind of genius if it ended right when um, Superman breaks Zod's neck and then you know screams in torment and then just cuts to black and says Man of Steel over the sounds of, you know, sirens and stuff like that, it would be the kind of ending that made me just, like, laugh about The Mist. Because people rave about the ending to The Mist, but actually, it only, that all, that ending also makes me laugh because it's just Tom Jane going, rah, 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 oh, darty. And it, it, it got, it's like a constant series of kick to the balls that 
I just couldn't take it seriously. Like, and I love the movie, like, but that part just kind of, like, I love the movie so much that that doesn't take it away. Man of Steel doesn't have that advantage because it's just so desperate to look cool to take back Superman Returns that, you know, their priorities were all fucked up for that movie. So, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this. Uh, let's see. I also recently watched the, the, the return of Community and Sherlock, and it's kind of fitting that those two premiered. This, uh, like I watched those two at the same time because somehow those both those shows, like Sherlock, ended up becoming just as up its own up its own butt as Community. So, thank you guys. Bye bye. <laughs> Three minutes, fifteen seconds. That's great. Five more seconds. La 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 oh. la la. Uh, I'm I'm back. Hi, Jim. <laughs> I like again. I like how it says. Aside from how much I hate masculines, uh, what up, ugly people movie? I, That's I just, us. Yeah, I that just... we should change our podcast to Ugly People Movie. <laughs> no, it's true. I uh, I watched the first twenty minutes of Man of Steel, and it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So I I'm, had to turn it off. I I don't believe it or not. Actually, you probably would, but. It made Matt Gamble's best movies of the year, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of went, "Nah, I'm not. I'm just not going to bother. I just, I, nah. I have no desire to see Superman revamped once again by Zach Braff. Or wait a minute, no, it's who is that? Who's the director? Zach Snyder. It's Zach Braff. Yeah. No, no, this is the movie that Zach Braff crowned. <laughs> well, th- man, thanks for a great voicemail. That was awesome. I just had, I, hey, I can't contribute too much to Man of Steel. Apologies, sorry. Want to hey, know Jim. my number seven? I do. It's a movie that I'm surprised hasn't made a ton more lists because it's a genre movie done right by a visual master like Park Chan Wook, who has made probably his best movie since Old Boy, and that is Stoker. Oh, that's also my list of shame. I didn't see it. Oh, shame on you. Shame on me. Uh, Tell me about Stoker. I like that it's partially about uh, sexual awakening and suburban malaise, and it's cloaked in this Hitchcockian sort of backdrop. Feels kind of creepy and invasive at times. And um, Mia Wasikowska plays a fragile girl who uh, is kind of taken in, you know, and not necessarily seduced, but just fascinated by her uh, her uncle. That uh, moves in after her father um, mysteriously dies. And, you know, it definitely pays homage to the Hitchcockian movie, or the Hitchcock movie um, that I can't remember right now, but it's very similar in plot. Uh, But when you have a visual master, like I mentioned, like Park Chan Wook, um, you know, he knows what he's doing with the cameraman. I can't I can't say enough about like visually how stunning this movie is and how it's like I want to put every frame on my wall. Um and acting is great. I, w- I was just with this movie from the get-go. It's and people can sort of label it as stylistically showy or oh, again, style over substance, but I actually think there's there's some cool shit going on beneath the surface. I I really do. I it does kind of have just a slight coming-of-age element going on. Um, But, you know, it is about sort of like uh, the mystery of who you are and 
you know, the nature of identity and it doesn't, you know, if you uh, discover that you're a bad person and you want to do bad things, what does that mean? Uh, I mean, philosophically, it's not necessarily deep, but I think it's just beautiful. And, like, even when there's creepy, weird shit going on, I still think it's beautiful. And it has, like, a, just an old-fashioned feel, I an incredible visual palette, and Mia Wasikowska is really step up to be kind of one of a uh, one of our best modern actresses today i think it's an incredible movie stoker it's on netflix instant people check it yeah, out yeah i i honestly the reason i didn't watch it is i was afraid it would i was afraid i would feel about it the way i thought about killer joe which was an, a no. movie that everyone no 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 because no. everyone's bending over backwards to be how how amazing and twisted killer joe was but it was just to me it just was super gross and just no. overbearing and uh, and unpleasant I was afraid that this was going to be all incestual and... No, it's hinted at. But but it's not overbearingly unpleasant. No. No, I wouldn't say unpleasant. It's There's definitely moments of that, but it's not consistently unpleasant to where you're like, ugh, you know, the whole time. Because, I mean, that is somewhere where Park Chan-wook can go, is he can go very dark places. So that was where I was afraid it was going to end It's definitely a dark movie. It's a dark thriller. But uh, I think th- I think there's some interesting things going on, and you know a lot of visual metaphors that pop up, um, and just a beautiful, crazy ending too. All right, I'll I'll, I'll have to check it out if it's still on Netflix Instant. Uh, do you want to hear another list, Jim? Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, Mandy Whitaker, uh, Mindy Whitaker. I apologize. Oh yeah. Uh, she'd made that uh, intro. That That's we, right. That we played. That's very cute and awesome. It was very nice of her. Yeah. Uh, her number 10 was You're Next, which is such a great leading female performance, one of the best horror films since The Strangers. Uh, number Ooh. six was The Great Beauty. Her number eight was Nebraska. Her number seven was Upstream Color. Her number six was 12 Years a Slave. Her number five was Inside Lewin Davis. Her number four was American Hustle. Uh, her number three was Gravity. Her number two was All is Lost. Hmm. Um, and her num- yeah, yeah. And her number one is Stories We Tell. Ooh, I approve. Good list. Thank you. That was yeah, great. So, so, uh, I really liked Alice s- Lost, by the way. I, it's probably my top 30. I really liked it a lot. Because I'm, I'm a sucker. I think I mentioned this on a different podcast about I love survival stories. Like you're just out in the mi- middle of nowhere and you have to fend for yourself. And I honestly... It's, it's a one-man act. No, it's true. There's, I like a lot about it. Um, uh, uh, especially the aforementioned sexiness of Robert Redford. Um, but honestly, I think maybe I had too high expectations going because from everything I heard about it, it sounded like this, it sounded like the antidote to all my quibbles with gravity, mm-hmm. which is, Oh, here's a, here's a movie that is a similar thing to gravity, but it, it, it has it, a score, you know, there's, well, no, I'm it mostly, I meant the exposition. Uh, okay. Um, or yeah, the sort of the clumsy exposition or character moments in right. Gravity. Um, whereas this is a movie. Oh, it strips out all that, but it still has that survival in a harsh place and sort of just having to use all your resourcefulness and wits to survive to the very end. Um, and it does have that, but it's not nearly as exciting as Gravity. So, um, whoa, you turned into a robot for a second. That was pretty cool. It's not nearly as exciting as Gravity, is what I said. Yeah, um, I got that. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, I mean, no, I liked all his loss, uh, but I, like I said, I listed it in movies I'd recommend, but, um, it wasn't, it wasn't as high for me, but that's fine. 
my my New Year's resolution, by the way, is on this podcast to eliminate the kind of thinking um, where I just say like, "Oh, you're wrong," or people are wrong for liking this. I just I'm trying to be more open minded. I'm trying to just trying to. So I'm not wrong for liking House of the Devil. No, no, you're not wrong. Oh. That's just that just works for you. Yes. Yeah. I hate I I despise that. I mean it's <laughs> it's so boring, but I mean it's not boring for you for whatever reason. Yeah. Um I love, but, uh, I love ordering pizza. It's yeah. Well, it, then if it's in a movie, it's even better. Mm-hmm. Um you want to hear my number 7? Seven? 7's my lucky number. What is it, Patrick? You already talked about it. You stole my thunder. Sorry. World's End. Good choice. It's uh I mean it's it's a lot of things. To the point where I really want to rewatch. I can't wait to rewatch this and sort of get a better handle on what it is. Um, so I honestly feel like maybe I don't have a ton to say, if only because I feel like this movie has a ton to say and yeah, I does. can't grasp it all at once. But I can see bits and pieces of all the things it's doing, of all the the way that sort of the blanks are sort of the stand-in for all the different fears and anxieties that all the characters have, and and the way that uh, you know corporatization sort of you know, kills the, uh, you know, uniqueness of the small towns, but also, and the way that, uh, you know, um, nostalgia can be this sort of poisonous thing if you let it. And I, there's, I mean, there's so much going on, but really it's just so funny. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny. I don't yeah. think it's, I don't think it's quite, like, I didn't laugh as hard as Wolf of Wall Street. I don't think it's the funniest movie of the year, but it's probably the best comedy of the year. Yeah. He's um, able to just, uh, you know, Ringles like you know he's able to wrestle in some pathos from these characters in ways that you don't expect, and that happened to me in Shaun of the Dead. You know, even like towards the end where you know he he has to say goodbye to his mom. Like I moved. Like how does Edgar Wright do that? And like he's invested so much uh, characterization into these uh, actors that I think like eventually it's almost like. Not not that it's similar to the before, uh, you know, Sunset, like, because they're all different characters in each movie, but you st- start to associate the actors themselves, too, with Edgar Wright's sensibilities, and I think, in some ways, like, The World's End is kind of uh, a nice culmination, but yet he's also subverting your expectations of the actors, too, which I kind of like, too. I, I, I do want to say that I am kind of opposed to just the general idea uh, that a lot of people on the internet love to do, which is trilogy. It's a trilogy. This is a trilogy. Uh, it's the it's the unofficial trilogy, and it's like I'm sure I know that is the term. That's the terminology that Edgar Wright uses, but it's the terminology Edgar Wright uses because that's how he connects with his fans. Like I think all filmmakers make films that are seem thematically similar, but you don't have to fucking call it. Uh, this is the trilogy of movies where he blank. Like, no, he just happened to make three movies. If he makes a fourth movie, then what happened to your precious fucking trilogy? Like, I don't like, it's an Edgar Wright movie. It's not a, it's not, I don't see them as inherent part of a triptych. You know, I don't, I don't see this necessarily as the culmination. It, it definitely feels more mature and mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. And, 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 and smarter than the other two, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, it's clearly what the other two are building to. I just, I just think, I I don't know. I'm opposed I'm to that. Just, sort of thing. I'm just honing in on the theme of nostalgia, kind of like I understand. Like there are moments where, like, ah, I remember when I used to make movies with my friends in high school and how great it was. You know, like just 
you, you hearken back to certain moments in your past, and I think this movie captures that really well. I, I think like just the idea of having a reunion with all my friends from high school and stuff. That sounds great in theory, <laughs> you know. And then this movie sort of shows the reality of it, and I like that. Yeah, probably because I'm getting older and I have those moments. No, certainly. certainly. Um, I'm excited to read Nat uh, Elmeral's list. He's one of my favorite guests that we had on this past year, uh, particularly for the David Lynch episode. He, he really helped out a lot, and he's going to be on for our Otto Preminger episode coming up uh, in about a month. So I'm really excited for his return. His number 10 was 12 Years a Slave, which had incredibly uncomfortable scenes and an interesting take on slavery. Number 9, American Hustle. I I like his description. It's a performance buffet. That's great. I I agree with that. Sometimes a movie just needs great performances to sell me, and this is definitely one of them. And uh, it's, it's nice that he brings up that... Christian Bale's impersonating De Niro at times, and I, I agree with him on that. Number eight is a movie I haven't heard of called Blancanavis, which is Snow White. I believe it's a silent film. It's a Snow White with midget bullfighters in 1920s Spain. He says, uh, I think it outdoes even Stoker in the grotesque and eerie. That sounds interesting, huh? I Yeah. Uh, number seven is Gravity. Number six is The World's End. Number five is Her. Number four is uh, Captain Phillips, which I'm kind of surprised didn't make my list because I did like it a lot. Uh, number three is Stories We Tell, uh, which I got to see with him at the Chicago Film Critics Festival, and that was really cool. Number one, um, it's tied. So I guess number one and two can flip back and forth here. Uh, he's kind of struggling to go with one or the other, uh, but Before Midnight and Inside Lewin Davis. So that's it's like another great list. Representative of a really great year in movies, and I, I'm looking forward to talking more with uh, with Nat because he's he's an awesome guy. Sure. Hey Jim. Oh um, boy, we... where are we? Number six, right? You're number six. My number six is Francis Ha. Hey baby. Nice. Tell me about Francis Ha. I liked it. It's a good really? Movie. Yeah. Uh, well, it's what funny. Did you, what did you think of that ending? I thought it was good. Uh, <laughs> I like just as being like really, really kind of mysterious about it. Like uh, I like this movie; it's good. Um, I lo- you know what? I forgot to mention that uh, this is kind of like a movie equivalent of a wonderful pop song. And how great is the use of David Bowie's "Modern Love"? You know? Oh, have you? Oh, so Leo Carex. You know, oh. who, who directed Holy Motors. Uh-huh. He directed a movie, I believe it's called Bad Blood. Really? Which used modern love in a very similar way. Hmm. To the point where when I saw this movie, I was like, so is that a ripoff or is that an homage? Hmm. Um, and Uh-oh. apparently, according to Q&As that Noah Baumbach has had, he, it was just an idea he had in his head for a while. And he had never seen the Leo Carax movie before he made this one. Oh, okay. But there is... Uh, I, I recommend everyone look up uh, uh, "Modern Love," uh, "Bad Blood." I believe is the name of the hmm. film. Um, it's an—I think it's even better scene. Um, so I will say it's a good use of modern love, but it's also—it was tarnished by the fact that I, it was like, "Oh, I've, I've seen this before." This is a warm, funny, and convincing portrait of twenty-something and we 
or you know, however you want to pronounce that word. I'm pretty sure that's the right way. But just ennui. like ennui, that's right. Thank you. Um, you know, it, it, it. I know you mentioned girls, and I think like this movie definitely takes a cue from it without necessarily being like that. I think. You know, it wants to portray it, but in that Noah Baumbach sort of, uh, not freeform, that's not the right word, but it's more of just, it's a movie that feels natural in terms of performances and the way things play out, and you can relate to it. It's it's just really, um, it, it, I, as I was watching, I was just kind of like, this is kind of, maybe Noah Baumbach's more uplifting movie since... Uh, kicking and screaming, I think. Like, I just felt a little bit sunnier watching it. Like, I know some, you know, just that deep-rooted uncertainty when you're at a certain age and not sure of your identity or how you fit in or why you're socially awkward. That definitely plays into the movie, and I found that instantly identifiable at times. Um, But at at the same time, it, it ends on a hopeful note in, you know, in, in a more direct way. That I think he captured very beautifully, and I, I, I think Greta Gerwig, like you said, is phenomenal in this movie, and it's probably her best performance. I realize some people have dismissed it. I'm kind of sad by that because I think it's probably Bombach's best movie since Squid of the Whale by far. I think it's I think it's better than Squid and the Whale personally. Ooh, and I love Squid I and the Whale. I mean, it's not, mm. but I, I do think this is a little better. Um, what what did, what grounds do they dismiss this? Uh, it's mostly Colin and Eric. They just is. I don't know. I can't like specifically cite why they. I think they just have a grudge against Noah Baumbach in general. Like, they just <laughs> I just don't know why. But like, I, I heard them on uh, their best of show with Nick and being like, "Oh, Francis, ha, huh? it's overrated and it's Baumbach. Oh, it's in black and white. Oh, it must be profound." And I'm like, guys, no. Well, I mean, that's I, again. That's- that's what I like about it is that it isn't profound. Yeah. What do you what do you what do you think about the black and white photography? Um is he do, is it I mean do you think uh, there's a can did you did it feel like it was there for a specific reason for you or is it just something that you liked or It's just an aesthetic choice that I thought was appealing. I mean it's interesting like you know I guess between this and Nebraska like is it necessary to tell the story in black and white? I don't think so. I mean, but I, I just like it. I mean, whether he's paying homage to French New Wave or not, or it doesn't really uh, sway me one way or the other. I I just it, I didn't find it like to be this self conscious distraction. I just thought it was a cool aesthetic choice on his part. Um, but yeah, great movie. Yeah, I, I I was thinking about that when I was watching Nebraska, um, and. In terms of what does black and white mean in 2013, um, when less and less and less is even shot on film, let alone black and white film. I mean, Clerks, Clerks was famously shot on black and white just because like it was way cheaper <laughs> than color. Yeah, that's and totally way, true. Like there was a point in you know there was a point in time where in Hollywood, like certain films would be shot in black and white because they didn't need because. Black and because color, you know, Technicolor was the equivalent of a big CGI sort of a thing. So it's like certain movies needed that big Technicolor bombast because they're big musicals that were wowing you or or epics or 
or they were, you know, uh, Robin Hood or whatever. And then, uh, like uh, in 2013, when what? you know, uh, it's it's interesting to think about what black and white even means. To me, it just mm-hmm. felt they both uh, Nebraska and Francis Ha, and I guess uh, computer chess for that matter. Um, I've forgotten computer chess is in black and white just because that's not the first technical weird thing I think about <laughs> when I think about that movie. But um, I, it, uh, black and white feels like um, somehow it feels more intimate. Warm? Not warm necessarily, but like, like it feels more stripped out. Like, like you said, very, okay. uh, they're very natural performances and stuff. And it feels very natural. And I mean, computer chess more than any film this year, like feels like it's just capturing sort of people living. But I always thought, I also thought that about Francis Ha. It felt very, it's weird that such a bold, you know, relatively bold as far as something that doesn't happen a lot, stylistic choice um, is used to indicate, or at least felt like it was indicating to me that uh, the opposite, <laughs> that things were going going to be stripped down and more naturalistic and nebraska was going to be a smaller film yeah. and uh you know and i want to hear your number six number six number six i bet you do okay so from number six to number one we've now reached the point in my list of no which return. we've reached the point where these films are all ineffable these are all films that overwhelms me so much these are not films that i'm necessarily even responding to intellectually they're, they're just films that the experience of watching them was so intense and amazing that uh, I can't – that they're just undeniable. And a lot of these movies – in fact, other than Room 237, uh, spoiler alert, which is coming off a little bit. Dang. Uh, uh, all of these movies are movies that I'd say I don't have a full grasp on. Uh, but these are movies that just sort of overwhelm me. So I guess I'm probably going to end up keeping these kind of short. Um because all I can describe to you is what they do as opposed to what they are to me. Uh, but Burberry and Sound Studio was my number six. I liked it. Um, I need to watch it again. I, it's, man, in terms of like, you know, tapping into some of the things I love about the conversation, obviously with like analog sound, um, and, I just, I guess I was looking for more of a plot. Yeah. Um, so I think a big part of this is, and like the same way that you saw Gravity on DVD or on your whatever later, mm-hmm. um, and it just wasn't the same as the big screen. Yeah. Burberian Sound Studio feels very essentially big screen to me, especially mm. towards the end, where the sound and the image both just become an assault on the viewer. Um, so this is a film, not so many on people's list, so let me go ahead and explain it. This is a film in which Toby, uh, Toby Jones is the name of the actor? It's not Toby Hooper. Yeah, I think it's, you're right. It's Toby Jones. So yes. Toby Jones plays a, a sound editor who mm-hmm. is going to Italy for a job where he's working on an Italian horror film in the 70s. Um, so you see him doing all this Foley work. You see him messing around with tape loops uh, to create music. There's an amazing moment where – he takes a woman's scream and he shows her as he like manipulates it and turns it into like music. And it's the most, like, I want to know what he did. I want to be able to do that. Like me too, me too, me too. too. 
it's the most incredible thing I've ever heard in my life. But it's it's basically this woman's scream, but it's all pitch shifted and, and slowed down and sped up in a way that it just turns into singing, and it's beautiful. There's and it's a very strange film because there's sort of a sinister aspect to the the people who run the studio. Um, they're these kind of womanizing, kind of gangster uh, Italian types, uh, um, which and and he's a very mild mannered man who always writes home to his mother. And slowly, he just gets sort of more and more in over his head. Um, uh, Phil Noble Jr., who we've had on for the uh, first uh, John Carpenter episode and for the William Friedkin episode, uh, he, no he, his description – No Beal. That's right. That's right. Sorry. Phil Nobile Jr. He described this as uh, a work anxiety dream. <laughs> but oh. Like – I it, like and that. For a lot of this film, it does just feel just like a straight nightmare. Um, I don't know if it's kind of like limiting to describe it as like what if David Lynch directed Blowout, but that's kind of what I was. Well, I mean, Silencio is <laughs> is the sign that is outside of the recording studio. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a lot of a lot of this film is the the club Silencio scene in Mohan Drive. <laughs> uh, sort of the idea of playing with image and sound, and what if you sync them up, and what if you don't sync them up, and what happens if you and what happens if you play with the audience's expectations as far as what audio and visuals should sync up? And obviously, since it's a story of a sound editor, it's appropriate. And But it's such an intense experience, especially on the big screen. And I can't – I mean I can't spoil this movie because it's so weird at the end. <laughs> it's hard to – like a lot, of my, a lot of my favorite films of the year, a lot of my top six, it's, uh, it's hard to describe, especially the ending. Mm-hmm. But basically, there is a point in the film where the screen uh, – or okay, so I'm, I saw this at the Gene Siskel Film Center. So I saw it at on, on a film print. I saw it, you know, nice. on the big screen. I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to brag, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, where it is just assaulting you, where the screen just gets brighter and brighter and more and more white, um, and the sound gets more and more intense, and it it just. It does devolve into like narratively. I have no idea. Like it's very hard to make sense of this, and I have not watched this again since I saw it in theaters. So, um, but the experience of watching this in theaters was so intense and so amazing, and so many of the scenes are just burned in my brain. And 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 again, it's just it just feels like a really perfectly realized nightmare. And I think. That is something that cinema can do that other art forms aren't as good at doing. Like I've never read a book that felt as much like a nightmare as a lot of movies I've seen. I've never read a book that made me feel like Texas Chainsaw Massacre makes me feel, you know? Yeah. Like that like that pure, that kind of feeling of just pure nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um so this is a this is a film that uh really just blew me away. And if you get a chance to watch it. Oh, I, again, it's just it feels so essentially big screen, especially since it makes you I mean, there's a number of scenes where they're sitting in a theater watching a screen and it feels like sitting in a theater is a big part of the experience of watching this movie. But at the same time, it's an incredible film. Um, so even if you have to watch it on DVD or Netflix or whatever you have to do. Uh, go ahead and watch this movie. It's amazing. Barbarian Sound Studio. You can also take the Laskowski approach and watch it while you're falling asleep. And be assured your dreams will be fucked up. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, that sounds th- good. It happened with computer chess and this one. Yeah, I need to rewatch it. Like, I appreciated it. I thought it was incredibly well done. I think I was just looking for something more to grab onto. That's but- that's completely that's completely fair. I I couldn't tell you what this other than again the Phil Nobile sort of uh, uh, interpretation of just it being an anxiety dream. And I like that. It makes me like, want to watch it again. Uh, other than it just being a nightmare, I couldn't tell you what it's quote unquote about. You know what I mean? Or, mm-hmm. but that's going to come up again later in my list. But Jim, should we read another list? Should we listen to another voicemail? What are we doing? Oh, let's see. What are we doing, Jim? Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! I think I want. I want to hear a voicemail. What about you? Hit me with your best shot. Okay. Here we go. What is it? Is it going to play? Yes, it is. Hey guys, this is Gabe calling. Um, I already wrote something up on the website, but it sounds like you want something for the show, too. Um, I didn't watch enough uh, 2013 movies to have a sound opinion besides loving Barbarian Sound Studio, Stoker, You're Next, and uh, I don't know what else, some other stuff. <laughs> anyway, I watched uh, two, over 520 films that year, just most of them weren't from 2013, so here are my 10 favorite films I saw for the first time. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent, uh, Henry Hathaway's Niagara, starring Marilyn Monroe, uh, Fred Zinnerman's From Here to Eternity, Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution, uh, saw, geez, Italian names, Vittorio De Sica's Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Hideo Gusa's, Gusha's, I have four names, uh, Three Outlaw Samurais, Brian Forbes's Seance on a Wet Afternoon, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, Yeah, Arthur Marx's Friday Foster, and uh, Lao Karlung's uh, Tiger on the Beat. Now that I've butchered every foreign name possible, you can read more about what I had to say on the Directors Club podcast website. See you guys next year, or I guess this year. See you guys later in this year, maybe October or something. Bye. Aw, one of my favorite peeps. Gabe Powers, the best. Yeah. Still, I still maintain the best thing about Directors Club is that we uh, we were able to pay him uh, to write articles for us. It's true. He's the best. He's the best. Yeah. I, hey, Jim. I, I love that he brings up The Long Goodbye. That was great. That's one of my favorite movies I saw for the first time this year. You saw it for the first time in 2013? Uh, maybe. Well, it might maybe, have been 2012. Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe you're, maybe you're right. But it is great. It's yes. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Long Goodbye. We should probably do a Robert Altman episode at the end of 2014. I think we are. Sweet Jim. Hey, Jim, let me hear you to the five. <laughs> oh, my God. Gary the Squirrel showed up. I'm on vodka cranberry number two and a half because I put a lot of vodka in this one. So oh, let's go. Number shit. five, Jim. That means you're in the mood for something fucked up. Um, so my dear friend Heather and I watched this together. And we had to take breaks throughout because of how affected we were. It's so, it's such a discomfort. 
created by a story that's just like insane. But uh, it's essential to experience this kind of inhumanity at its most pure. It's graphic and intense and funny and surreal and it's the act of killing. Oh, I was going to say, uh, I, I thought this was Furious 6. <laughs> Furious? No. I don't really care for the Fast and Furious movie. Sorry, Andrew. Um, I just can't believe that these people are celebrated in that country. Uh, <laughs> that, the, that is, that is, it doesn't... When you say that, it doesn't sound like... It doesn't sound like strong film criticism, but... To be to be fair, you perfectly captured the feeling of of watching this movie, which is oh, what is oh, what, what are you doing? What are yeah. you? Yeah, I yeah, I was in shock and laughed and cringed and I think I felt like the gamut of emotions throughout this movie, and that's you know that's I've said it before and I'll say it again. That's kind of what I love about movies: feeling you know. A uh, crazy array of emotions all in the span of a couple of hours to where it makes me rethink who we are and my reactions and why and blah, blah, blah. But it's just like, God, I, I still don't know why that guy was in drag a lot for his reenactments. And um, yeah, there's like some just weird cathartic laughter and miss all these disgusting recollections of mass murder. And, uh, it, and the, the kind of... Uh, realization that the, the 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 lead guy has by the end is pretty pretty special. Like just him realizing it by himself and then practically throwing up. Uh, that's th- this movie is one of the most incredible documentaries I've ever seen in my life, and uh, I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't. But just be prepared <laughs> to feel really like. Uh, slapped across the face a lot uh, in different ways. And I, I just... And, like, there's just these moments that are, like, Werner Herzog or something, you know, where it cuts away to, like, these dancers coming out of a big fish and stuff. Like, I just... Um, like, my head was just kind of going, my... Like, back and forth, going, what am I... What is going on? But I loved it. And it it's one of the more incredible stories that you just have to experience. And you're going to probably, like, need uh, a good couple hours afterwards to either just drink or (laughs) sit in a room in complete silence and just meditate on how fucked up we are sometimes. I'm going to be talking about this film a little later, so I'm going to go ahead and hold my tongue. But I don't think you should hold your tongue for another list if you got one nearby. I sure do. Oh, Um, boy. Look, okay, number one, though, the act of killing. I, I do want to say, um, I do not avoid this movie because you think it, it will be too intense or upsetting. It's upsetting. No, it's, it's, 100, it's very upsetting. <laughs> yeah. You absolutely, I think everyone in the world should watch this movie. I think every <laughs> human being <laughs> should watch this goddamn movie. Babies, too. All the babies. Ooh, what was that little pop I just heard? You don't want to know. Hey, we're in the top five. It's time to get crazy. All right, cool. Red and Brown, uh, our dear friend, he was on the Breaking Bad episode, which, by the way, I still haven't watched the finale of Breaking Bad. <laughs> so I still haven't listened to that episode. You're a weirdo. 
I am a weirdo. I, it's it's okay. just one of those things where I waited too long, and now I feel like I should watch the whole series over again. Yeah, well, look how long it took me to get to The Sopranos. Jesus there, Christ. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, but uh, Ren Brown, uh, you know, he, he this year he sort of – he waited a little bit. He was sort of – he didn't want to do a formal list. He was just sort of wanting to watch all the movies and take it all in. Um, so uh, here are some of the, his favorite uh, films of the year or at least uh, his – his love, uh, he, he's basically given shout outs. So he goes, Shout out to Gravity for being the best blockbuster film of the year. I agree. What up, Gravity? Reminding us the technological and narrative innovation are not mutually exclusive and that the quality of one's film does not have to be inversely proportional to how much money is spent on it. That last, that last phrase, I, <laughs> that last phrase is very big for me because so much of, so, I, I just, I am not excited about movies the more money is spent on them generally. Um, and But Gravity was great. And it's and it was great because of all the money that was spent on it. So good for it. Uh, Ren says, big shout out to The Counselor, Place Beyond the Pines, Only God Forgives, and Upstream Color for discarding traditional narrative filmmaking to varying degrees and all being beautiful. Where I faced in an old desert island conundrum with only 2013 movies to pick from, I might as well bring this bunch of very different films with me. I love you, Ren, for including The Counselor. That's in my top 25. I thought, like, again, maybe it's a bias because of my unabashed love for Cormac McCarthy. Um, And it's a very dialogue-heavy film that's kind of pretentious, but I didn't care. I thought, it's again, it's one of those writing styles that I appreciate. And these, you know, crazy, insane, off-the-wall characters spouting dialogue that you would hear in Waking Life. Thumbs up. I I'm going to see the counselor uh sometime in the next month and we're going to talk about it, Jim. I'm excited for that actually cuz I'm curious to see what you're going to think of that one. Certainly, certainly. Um some love for ba- Dallas Buyers Club, which is just damn good character-based storytelling mm-hmm, features mm-hmm. a performance from McConaughey that I'm not hearing enough about. Shout out to Quiet Little Films that go in deep. Oh, short dear. Short Term 12, Nebraska Zero Charisma, Fruitvale Station, and Francis Ha have been very big movies for me. I'll throw Computer Chess some props here, too, though I'm still figuring that one out. We all are, Ren. We all are. We may never figure that one out. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Gatsbyism streak running through 2013 movies, even though Lerman's actual adaptation didn't, get, didn't really get there for me. But Pain and Gain, Wolf of Wall Street, and my personal favorite, Spring Breakers, all turned the insidious, uh, insidiousness of materialism and American hedonism into cinematic playgrounds. Don't forget gr- the bling ring. Sorry. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't see that one. I but know, I know. So I can't vouch for that one. And it's Sofia Coppola, so I double can't vouch for that one. But hey, I watched Lords of Salem. You owe me. That's true. I, you watch Lords of Salem, I'm going to watch Bling Ring. Yay. All right? Next Yay. month, I'm going to watch Bling Ring. Um, some of them have found satire... Some have found the satire in them tough to buy. Uh, in case of Spring Breakers, that would be me. Uh, which tells that me that even as it grows farther out of reach from both of us, we still all want to take our term at the extreme end of the American dream. Fair enough. Right. Shout out to Inside Lou and Davis for scaring the shit out of me. What? It's a horror movie? Though a different kind of look on mediocrity, it joins Amadeus as one of the movies that taps my darkest fears as an artist. Simple, beautiful, grumpy, just a bit <laughs> ambiguous, and it heavily features a cat. It's as if the Coens made a movie especially for me. Why do I have a feeling this is going to crack my top ten? Yeah, once you see Inside Lewin Davis, I want to hear all about it, Jim. Oh, boy. 
Shout out to 12 Years a Slave for obviously being the absolute best movie of the year and not by not an insubstantial margin. Fair enough, Ren. And he had a few extras. Shout out to Sound City for being the sharpest, most entertaining, if not world-changing, pop documentary I've ever seen this year. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Shout out to the Belgian film Fifth Season for being the movie I most desperately want to rewatch and talk about, but nobody has seen and there's no release co- U.S. release coming. Uh, agreed. Uh, that's always frustrating. Um, shout out to Evil Dead for merciless horror filmmaking and Lords of Salem for being weird and fun. Uh, I half agree with that. <laughs> I haven't seen Evil Dead, so I can't say. Shout out to The Wolverine for being the best dumb blockbuster. I really want to watch The Wolverine. I've seen a lot of people praise it. Yeah, me too. I'm actually curious now. Uh, I'm not above a dumb blockbuster. See two guns. Uh, (laughs) Shout out to Pacific Rims for bringing many dreams, so many dreams to such beautiful life. Don't agree with this at all, but hey, Ren, more power to you. And shout out to The World's End for clearly being movie I'm going to grow to love more than I do now. (laughs) <laughs> I I do agree with I, I agree with Ren on that one as far as just again there's so much there that I have not unpacked love you guys Ren thank you Ren we love you he was so good on the Breaking Bad episode it was ah, that was just a great episode in general yeah Cause, yeah because you know we talked about the series as a whole and what the finale meant and it's interesting because uh, you know the, the guy I mentioned earlier, my good friend Dan Solomon, and there are people who find the Breaking Bad finale to be eh, but I I don't know. I thought it was a perfect conclusion, and I that's kind of why I'm curious to see what you're going to think because you were kind of cold on the whole plant poison yes. thing. Yes, yeah. I was I was I was cold on the last season finale. Yeah, right. Before, um, let's speedy on up here. Room 237 is my number five. I've talked a lot about why I love Room 237. We have a whole episode on that. We have a whole episode that's half dedicated to Room 237. Basically, it is a movie about how all of us, how me, how you, how Jim. And everyone we know. Everyone we know. Me, you, and everyone we know. We all bring our own baggage um, with any art that we experience. Any films especially. But I'm any art. And this is at room 237 is the reason why I think Man of Steel is the worst movie of the year. <laughs> and and uh, and Matt, uh, Matt Gamble thinks it's one of the best movies of the year. Um, it's because like we're bringing because we both saw the same. Um, we both saw 24 frames per second flash before our eyes in the same sequence. But I but but it was just we brought different things to that to that viewing um and room 237 is all about that and what it also is is intoxicating um because it reveals so much about all these different weird little things about that movie um uh about the things that kubrick did in that movie as far as the geography of the hotel as far as jack nicholson reading a playgirl in the lobby as far as all sorts of weird continuity errors and stuff um it's it's really exciting to see them all revealed in front of you. It's really I mean it's a film that's made up of footage of The Shining, so it's already captivating <laughs> regardless. Uh I think Room 237. I also wrote a I also wrote a film review of this as well. So if you search back on our blog, you'll see I wrote a review of this. I'm not going to waste too much of your time. I understand people not not liking it as much as I do, but it's when people dismiss it as 
oh, it's a bunch of theories that I, none of them I buy. Therefore, it's worthless. No, that's what, no, that's what no, bums no. me out. Yeah. I noticed Room 237 was not in your honorable mention, Jim. I think I was confused. I wasn't, <laughs> sure. I wasn't sure when this came out. I guess I, mean, I did see it in 2013, so it should be in my honorable mentions. It's screened in, I mean, again, again, I, the rule that I'm going off of is if it was in Chicago in 2013, okay. then it's a 2013 okay. movie. Okay. Okay. I, I liked it a lot, quite a bit, yeah. I, I definitely see where you're coming from. This movie could just be called Hashtag Subjectivity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A lot of, you know what, Jim? A lot of movies this year could be called Hashtag Subjectivity, mm. but we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Let's see if I have another list in my myth. You should. <laughs> was, that, was that you trying to pronounce list, myths? <laughs> I love Daniel Baldwin. Um, Do you? Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. He um he's very supportive of the show. Um, I like that his Gmail is called uh, his his Gmail is Scuba Chicken Seven. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> and it's true. It's great. Good on good on you, Daniel Baldwin. And I can't wait to read his number one because it's definitely a movie that not anybody else has put at number one. That's so, true. So number ten is Harmony Corinne Spring Breakers. Number nine is a, a movie I. Wish I liked more than I, than I did, but I did like it. Uh, Place Beyond the Pines. Number eight, probably the best comic book movie of the year, Iron Man 3. Number seven, David O. Russell's American Hustle. Number six, You're Next. Number five, Gravity. And he's so glad because he says, I told you guys I'd see it! That's right, point. and on the Wes Craven episode, he had not yet seen it. Yeah, which was shocking. Number four is uh, Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave. Patrick, your heat is going through. It's blowing up the speaker. And it gets, like, amplified. Like like we're in a racer head or something. It's crazy. It's weird that they haven't developed a program that isn't completely shit when it comes to... <laughs> when it comes to... Like, that doesn't just do shitty, stupid things. Am I still super loud now? No, you're, you're just fine. Maybe you should just, like, say, uh-huh, or something after every pick. Okay. Number four is uh, 12 Years a Slave. Uh-huh. Number three is uh, Mud. Uh-huh. Number two is The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh-huh. <laughs> number one, I can't believe it that this is number one, but I did like it. And that's Maniac. The remake. I really want to see the Maniac remake. I I quite liked it. Um, there, there, there's certain moments where I kind of t- went, mm but overall, I, it's it's like if Nicholas Winding Refn made a slasher movie. That's yeah. what I thought of it. So I was on board. I thought it was pretty good. Okay, so that means we got to get to my number four. I want to hear about it, Jim. It's one of the most compelling chat fests ever filmed, which is it should be a pull quote for sure. Yeah, chat fests. <laughs> There's nothing audiences love more than. Finding out from the movie they're going to go see is a chat fest. Yeah. Um, what can I say, man? Before Midnight. I, I, I love this trilogy. I think it's better than Star Wars. <laughs> um, man, oh man. Like, this just... Oh, I can't tell you like how much I, I, I felt uncomfortable because I was like, oh god... 
I remember what it was like to be in a relationship and had that happen or that conversation erupt into something that went way out of control. But it's, it's you know, again, it's sure it's one of those movies where I saw bits and pieces of my own life, but it's kind of a miracle by like how much I care about the fate of these two people. Because I've spent, you know, these long gaps in between their stories um, kind of wondering like, hey, you know what? If these were people that I like had on like as Facebook friends, I'd be checking in on them. <laughs> Facebook friends? Yeah, I'd be checking in on them and saying like, wonder how they're doing. Do they have some pictures of, you know, some babies where I can be like, uh, comment, I see a future star, like yeah. you know that like. sort of thing. Yeah, like big time, and uh, <laughs> that's exactly. I should you know what to sum up before midnight, just put like like right next to it. <laughs> so, it's great. I loved it. Um it's refreshing and rewarding. Like I think uh every time Linkletter revisits these characters you learn something that's uh inherently uh commenting on the nature of relationships. Uh the the second one sort of finds that beautiful middle ground between the idealism and the realism. Um, and this one is just like so focused on how, uh, you know, you get married and kind of like how you describe cutie in the boxer too, where like you, you reach a comfort level to where you're able to express anything good or bad to one another. And you run the risk of hurting that person, but um, it actually enriches the connection that you share. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful thing. Thing to experience between these two people and man like Heathen Hawk has become a really good actor and that's something that I never would have thought much like Jared Leto like I, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with watching if if we get to see these characters in you know before noon or something <laughs> you know, would like that, would that be when the old people eat <laughs> Before five o'clock, and it's about them going to old country buffet. <laughs> oh God, I love before midnight. Keep on can going, I, brother. Keep on can going. I, can I can I ask you a question about before midnight? Yeah, go ahead. So this is I've not seen any of these films, so I'm woefully out of place and I don't have any context. But everything I've heard about before midnight, they they rave about they rave about the harsh arguments. Ooh, is it is yeah. it most is it mostly no it's not mostly it's not mostly art it's just that's the sort of the highlight of the film but it's yeah it's, it's, it takes it's, place later in the film a topless argument no less oh yeah I heard about I heard about that too yeah have you ever had a topless argument with a girlfriend no no you, you never had like a moment where you were naked and you were fighting um. No, because we just had sex and that was fun, and you know we're not in a bad place. I don't think you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had I've had I've had naked arguments. Well, you're frequently naked, so that makes sense. Oh, that's true. I am a nudist. All right, um, Patrick, a list and then number four. Okay. Well, my list comes from our dear dear friend Sean Ponto. Ponto, Ponto. You say Ponto, I say Ponto. That's right. Let's call the whole thing off. Oh my God, this is like an epic email, Patrick. I uh, I'll, I'll summarize it. Okay. 
All right. These are in no specific order. Uh, I really appreciate that he took the time to write this, so I'm going to go ahead and give him his due. He said, short-term 12, even – he says, if you don't love this movie, go to the doctor. <laughs> Get some tests done. Make sure you have your faculties in order. <laughs> like agree. you can call it an issues movie, but uh, this is a, a true movie about empathy, unlike – he. Here's, the, here's what I like about Sean Ponto. He's calling us both out in different, in different ways. When he reviews these movies, he's basically just telling all of us that we suck. So, he, so he's telling me, unlike the bloated and over-naked Cloud Atlas, this is a true movie about empathy. Through the eyes of a sweetie pie named Brie Larson. I don't cry in most movies, but when I saw this, my friend bought me a, brought me a canoe. Uh, I guess he cried. Canoe. I guess he... Is that a is that a short term twelve reference? No. Okay, I, I so guess that's it means just, he just had the because he had so many tears he created a river of tears. And yeah, yeah, he cr- he cried a river. Yeah, uh, JT style. Now mm-hmm. stories we tell uh, by Sarah Polly. Jim's love of take this schmaltz. Oh, burn! <laughs> <laughs> Last year is questionable, except for wanting to court Shelley Williams. I thought <laughs> it's not even Shelley Shelley Williams, right? <laughs> I, it's, yeah, it's Michelle Williams, but that's okay. Thank you. Oh, uh, thank you, Sean Ponto. Uh, but this is, but he calls this the documentary of the decade. Whoa! Because, because it's about something universal, the need to create a personal narrative and to have it shared with those we love. Uh, hmm. He says it's unpretentious and holy duck, which I'm going to go ahead and guess <laughs> is a nice way of saying holy fuck. Did Polly finally make a movie that is for the ages? I, I like that he says finally made a movie for the ages as if like oh, making we were all a movie waiting. for the ages is something that sh- should just be accepted. Like, oh, yeah, everyone makes a movie for the ages. We were just waiting. Mm-hmm. Finally, Polly mm-hmm. did it. Computer chess. He says, nice. sorry. Now, now he's fucking. Now he's, he, man, he's dropping bombs all over the place. Sorry, people who love her can stay <laughs> home and they can fondle their iPads. <laughs> Oh man, this guy's it's about brilliant. a it's about a nerd who passes up Olivia Wilde, fucks fucks up with Rooney Ro, Rooney Mara, but jerks <laughs> off to thoughts of Scarlet Jojo. <laughs> who is this? Who are you? He says this movie, however, says so much about connecting in fascinatingly weird ways that it becomes a slight commentary of goofballs like Chris Hardwick. <laughs> what? It's funny, fully. <laughs> Full of holy inter- original interactions, not to mention uncomfortable sex proposition and cat allergies. The most original movie in a while. I will agree with the last phrase. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Inside Lewin Davis, he says is the best Coen Brothers movie after Burn After Reading. Wow. He says it's a masterpiece about a narcissist who just wants to be a narcissist and how his art adds fuel to his selfish fire. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah. I like that description. Yeah, uh, it's no, it's 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 accurate. Again, I would use the like Francis Ha. I would use the term solipsistic. Ooh, um, I like that word. We don't we use narcissist a lot. Uh, we gotta start jumping aboard the solipsistic. Yes, train. we gotta run that one into the yeah. ground before midnight. Hey, hey, you're hey, Jim. Oh, listen up. He, listening. You know what he says? He says, "Fuck Star Wars." <laughs> oh my god. I wonder if you subconsciously implanted that into my brain. Yeah. This is a trilogy to remember for the ages. <laughs> for the ages. 
He says, romantic and miserable. It felt like watching my ex-wife and myself going at it and storming out of a Motel 6 room, <laughs> which is a much better ending than we had. We need more topless arguing scenes and <laughs> car rides like this one that opens this gem. Mm-hmm. Gravity. He says, the game changer. He says, the shockingly moving movie that starts Sandra Bullock. I hope she made it home okay, quits NASA, and becomes a ham radio enthusiast. <laughs> a little fan fiction here on the Drift yeah, Club podcast. I, like that. I almost puked with joy when this was over. <laughs> And then, and then uh, to slam me, he goes, screw those folks who want to complain about the score. Cough, cough, Pat Truck. Cough, cough. <laughs> I don't know why you misspelled my name, but okay. Or the cliche dialogue. It's an achievement of epic proportions. Deal with it. And then little sunglasses fell onto his head. And then for upstream color, he says, just watch it. <laughs> Insert your summary. <laughs> Oh, uh, hunt. It, I'm gonna. I'm gonna speed this up a bit. Yeah, hunt more prisoners and stick with this. Hey, that's uh, what Wolf I said. of Wall Street. Money never sleeps. Say hello to my comedy of the year. Uh, Don John, a personal choice since I was addicted to porn. Hey, all right, thanks, Sean. Uh, TMI. That's. Hey, thanks for I'm, sharing that. Yeah, with no, me. I'm kidding. Uh, Bling Ring, a subtle and much more affecting Spring Breakers. Uh, sure, it didn't have Freaky Franco, but why not? But why show off and get messy with a true story about ripping off jewels from celebs like Paris Fucktard? All right, Sean. Brilliant. Oh, and Twelve Years a Slave was good too. Did I mention I hated her? <laughs> yes, you did, Sean. Thank you. Wow. I like Sean, I like this guy a lot. This guy's got spunk. He's got charisma. He should hey, come on our show and be a guest. That'd be fun. Hey, you want to hear my number four, Jim? Please, I'm waiting. Leviathan. It's uh, number twenty something. It's uh, I, 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 I was like, where am I at the beginning? You had a you had a Brian Tyler Rico experience mm-hmm. with Leviathan. I did it like just, it a lot though. You ju- you just kind of felt alienated. Yeah, a little bit. Just at the beginning, I, I Le- it took me a while to get my bearings with this one. That to me is that to me is kind of the. The point in some nation with this movie, which oh, is oh okay, it's oh my god, it's it's so intense. Again, I, I've reached the point where I'm just talking about movies that were you know just sort of ineffable to me, and it's kind of hard to talk about them. But um, Leviathan is just one of the most intense experiences I've ever had watching a movie where I switch identification so much, where I'm sliding around on the fucking the floor of the boat with the fish, and then I'm following around, and then I. And I was relating to a, I was relating to a seagull as it was eating the scraps of fish, and it was trying to get over like a little bump. And I was relating to the fishermen and how they're dealing with this boring ass job, and they had arms full of scars, which I also have <laughs> arms full of scars. Mm. Uh, my my scars are from cooking. I'm not trying to imply that I'm some kind of <laughs> ultra blue collar worker, but I also have scars all on my arms from from cooking burns and stuff. Um, and and I was related to the sort of the mundanity of that kind of labor. Um, it's it was just an incredible experience, and it at once made me feel that human beings, uh, commercial fishing, was freakish and scary and unnatural, but also just part of the order of things. Um, because at the same time, I also identified with fish. And I had seagulls come down and attack me. Um, and Patrick, the reason, I thought you hated fish. I do hate fish. I'm just mm. saying. I'm just saying that 
the reason I'm speaking, and I and again, I talked about this in the Miyazaki episode, but the reason I'm speaking in first person all this is because you're never given a character ever, or even a human, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. no one to identify with. You just, I just sort of took the identity, you know, I just sort of related with whatever the camera was doing at the time, which sometimes it was sliding around the the floor of the boat with dead fish. And sometimes it was in the water being attacked by seagulls with a bunch of other fish. Sometimes it was up in the sky with the seagulls. Oh God, that shot. Fuck. (laughs) This movie is terrifying and exhilarating. And it's a million things that I didn't know films could be. Um, And I've seen a lot of like, I I've seen a lot of movies. I don't want to pretend that I like I'm beyond being surprised by movies. But I was surprised at how much this movie is unlike any other movie I've ever seen. Um, and it was so affecting that even moments that were boring to me – and I'm not going to say this movie is 100 percent start to finish brilliant or 100 percent start to finish you know, just indelible images that you'll never get past. Uh, like you know, there are moments of this film that I, I wasn't as interested in as others. But on the whole, it was so – just overwhelming and affecting. I can, it was just a force to be reckoned with. Um, I, and again, I talked about this in the Miyazaki episode, hundred percent understand anyone not being into this movie. Cause if you don't fall in under hypnosis of this movie, you know, the way that I did, then you're going to be shit out of luck. Cause nothing happens Aww. and there's no, there's no narrative and there's no story. And there's not even really a quote unquote, message or theme or whatever it's not it's not really um trying to even you know get at some kind of grand thematic content abstractly it's more just the experience of watching this movie and i didn't even see it in theaters i saw this you know on dvd on my tv but it it was really it made me think about a lot of things and it made me think about a lot of things without any dialogue (laughs) you know that was audible and that to me is just the ultimate act of filmmaking. Leviathan is one of the most amazing movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I, 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 I would definitely probably put it in my top fifty movies of all time. Um, and it's only number four of twenty thirteen. If you want to talk about, uh, if you want to talk about how great a year twenty thirteen was, you so know why this is lower on my list? Why is that? Because of stingrays. I didn't like what happened. Well. <laughs> That's I was gonna. I never did. I when I was watching it, I was thinking I gotta tell Jim about this because <laughs> these stingrays get brutally killed. Mm, I don't want to talk about that anymore. Jim Jim loves stingrays, and he I'm sure was very upset at the scene in which stingrays had their what are they called wings fins? Yeah, they look like wings. They're fins. Just just cut off. Oh God! It's brutal. It's a brutal move. It's a Brutal movie, but it's also just oh, there's you cannot deny this movie I in can't. the way that one of my I mean one of my least favorite movies of the year only God forgives. I don't like this movie very much at all, but I will say it's undeniable. Uh, to me, like Leviathan was the good version of that, where it is undeniable and just overwhelming, but it's also not super dumb, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Patrick, so Levi- we're, on the, we're on the verge of having our longest episode ever. That's fine. We gotta go. So I'm gonna read a list, and then we'll get go to my number three. This list comes from Lars from Sweden. 
which is really cool. I'm glad that he sent us his top 10, which are number 10, The Place Beyond the Pines, number 9, To the Wonder, number 8, Under the Rainbow, which I'd never heard of, but it comes from France, number 7 is Stoker, number 6 is Gravity, number 5 is Stories We Tell, number 4, The Reunion, which comes from Sweden, number 3, The Grandmaster, number 2, Francis Ha, and number 1 is Blue is the Warmest Color. You know, The Grandmaster, I'm Kind of excited to see that, because it's Wong Kar Wai's new movie, but apparently it was chopped to bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all Harvey Scissorhands got a hold of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading, I've been reading uh, this book uh, called Down and Dirty Films, which is about sort of the 90s indie independent film boom and Miramax and sort of how that all peaked and, and crested and then ended in the late 90s with like Shakespeare and love and all that. Um, and... Uh, Harvey Weinstein's a fascinating character. Yeah, I mean, I gotta read more about that guy. I think he's kind of fucked up. You would love this book. Okay. You, you who have seen every 90s independent film. Yeah, especially ones made by Hal Hartley Patrick. Um, he's briefly anyway. mentioned. Okay. What's your number three movie of the year? It's a movie you liked. And I think it's this top three. Just just chalk it up to like gym movies. One oh sure. Yeah. Sure. Number three is stories we tell. I'm so glad I'm, you like this because I was scared. I you know what? I was scared too, because I didn't like it until the last thirty minutes. Why did it take you so long? Go ahead. Tell me what you like about it. I, 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 I desperately want to hear all the what desperately. you feel. Yeah. It's a fascinating story, you know, like, okay, I I walked in kind of knowing the basics, you know, it's it's about Sarah Pauly trying to find out about her, um, you know, her birth father, and I, uh, you know, her mother, I, it's interesting because, like, I think even coming after Take This Walt, it's kind of like showing some empathy for what her mother potentially had been and like this becomes about something that's come up a lot when she did her Q&A at the Chicago Film Critics Festival Um, somebody beat me to the punch because I saw some thematic similarities to away from her and that like the malleability of memory and how you know uh, it's just it can be fragile. It can be transformed, and life experiences change in the eyes of either the person telling the story and the person listening to the story, and how it gets passed on. And it becomes this fascinating narrative of why we are storytellers, or even why we're talking about movies we love on a podcast because we want to share, you know, our passions, our ideas, and our experiences together. So it it kind of becomes about interconnectivity from a very personal place, and just it comments on storytelling and i thought it was more revealing and personal than anything she's done up until this point and i think the more and more i think about it the more and more i love it and you know the, the it's it, it's it's all summed up in the in the, in the actual title of the movie it's stories I, we tell can i can i uh i'm going to go ahead and do a little spoiler um and i'm going to ask a question so um, if you don't want to have this movie, it's not a huge spoiler, but if you don't want to have the movie spoiled, like fast forward 10 minutes or so, uh, 10 minutes, I don't know. I hope um, not. Jim, uh, uh, probably closer to five minutes, but, um, 
so anyway, spoiler alert, here it comes. At what point did you realize that the home movie footage was faked? Towards the end. Um, I, I think it was even when she actually revealed it to the audience. Okay. But did you pick up on that much quickly? So much here, here's, I mean, here's something that could very well contribute to the fact that I wasn't super hot on this movie, which is that was our, I had read a review that revealed that. Uh, but watching it, and again, again, retrospect, and watching it in retrospect, um, so much of the footage felt so obviously not like how on earth could they have footage of her actually receiving the phone call that they're talking <laughs> about, or or how like who is holding the camera during the footage? What like it's all the same super eight quality, but Sarah Polly is talking to who she finds out is her actual father, and like they never acknowledge the camera. Yeah, it almost turns into like a real life Rashomon. In a no, way. no, I mean that's that is that's definitely thematically well, that's what that movie's about. It's about, right. um, but I honestly I don't know. Um, so again, there's a lot about this movie I really like. I. I think maybe my main um, – the main reason I am not as enamored with this film as some is that I don't find the sort of the story at the center of it that compelling, hmm. which is what – you know, I, it's just not that compelling to me. It just sounds like a very like, – <laughs> I hate to bring up Take This Wall together, but it, it just feels like a very typical story. Um, and but it's, it's real. But it's a typical. But it's not. It's the kind of thing that doesn't necessarily feel like it's. It doesn't necessarily need a documentary about it. I mean, until it gets to really what it's about. I mean, I understand where you're coming. That's my point. That's my point. Okay. Is that the nugget at the center feels like a like as far as something if it happened to you personally that'd be fucking crazy you know if you or your sister mm, or your mm-hmm. brother or who, your sibling or whatever like if that whole that'd be crazy in your family but it wouldn't be grounds for a documentary on its own uh, and that's not i mean and to be fair that's not what stories we tell is stories we tell is about that sort of way that um and what I find fascinating about stories we tell is that like a lot of films from 2013, it's about uh, sort of the death of objectivity mm-hmm. <laughs> and just sort of how subjective everyone's experience is and just how no one can – like she's not around. Like her her mom died of cancer, so she's not around to tell the story at all. So all we have are these bits and pieces from all these different people who have different interpretations of her mother. Yeah, um, which I've been through personally. Like just no. my dad, and that's and, and that's probably like a huge reason Certainly. why it was emotionally involving. But I understand where you're coming from. Like just like, oh my god, is that her real father or what? Like I understand. Like just the basics, the the, the blueprints of how the story begins. Okay, it, it's something that maybe it could be <laughs> portrayed in a really soap opera light, but it's not. And I think where it goes surprised me. Uh, again, yeah, I think I, I wonder how much of the effect of this movie is surprise, and if that was just something that was just ruined for me, and that's unfortunate. It's okay. Uh, 
It's it's on like a fact the fact that Sarah Polly's movie is even on your top fifteen. I, I I'll I'll shake your hand. I don't. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I know I like this. I like this movie, and my point is, I don't want to. When you're talking about one of your favorite movies of the year, when you're talking about your number three movie of the year, I don't want to make it you just defending it. You know, you can Mm-mm. just talk about how much you love it, and a lot of people love it. This is some people's number one movie of the year. You know, like. It's uh, I, I I'm just um, sort of this is the I found the actual story that happens a little dull, um, and then it wasn't until the end in which she actually started directly addressing people about um, the way that they remember the story or whatever that it became interesting to me, um, and honestly, and honestly, everyone's remembrance of of her, of her mom. It's not as if it's even a great example. It's not even as if it's a great demonstration of that theme because it's not as if everyone remembers her differently. It's not as if she was a different person to everyone. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of her mom is that she was just sort of this open book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she was mm-hmm. just sort of so out there and not hidden um, except for this one thing, you know, like it's, um, I don't know. Like it's a it's an interesting documentary, and I love that it is what it is, and I love that it is a documentary that you know what I mean. Like I love that it's a documentary that acknowledges that it's a documentary and plays with the fact that it's a documentary and plays with the um, you know plays with the format and all of that. Um, Good. So I. <laughs> This is it's a special movie. I like I like stories we tell. I'm glad you liked it. I was scared. No, it's not a it's not a I don't have the reservations about it. It's a lot more subtle and it's a lot more smart than uh than uh Take This Waltz. Cool. Let's, so let's let's speed it up a little bit, honey. My number three is computer chess. Yes. It's an enigma. It is baffling. <laughs> Every part of this movie feels odd and strange. And um, if I'm going to talk about just the base beyond anything else, you can be the kind of person who doesn't like, uh, you doesn't like movies that are just weird and don't necessarily have answers. Um, you can, you can think that it doesn't all connect. Well, it's not very captivating. There is no other movie I've ever seen in my life that understands nerds as well as computer chess. Computer chess, um, even if it's not anything else, it is an anthropological study of nerds and about the kind of people who become nerds and about all the personalities that go with it. And if you spend enough, if you spend as much time with nerds as I have, like you will recognize every single character in this movie. And that to me is the core of the movie that keeps me coming back and keeps me thinking about it. Um, because it's weird and it's, odd and it's funny and it's a little quirky and it's surreal and it's puzzling um and it does things stylistically with the there was the there's a there's a film writer his name is callum marsh and he wrote an article about uh he wrote an article about michael mann's miami vice movie um and i and i and i'm i don't like miami vice i don't like that movie but he said something about it that was I thought was interesting, which is that mm. 
the way Michael Mann employed digital photography made things more both it made things both more realistic and less realistic. Like it made it feel more impressionistic um, because the way that uh, textures were captured were all weird or whatever. But it also felt more realistic because it felt more immediate and the frame rate was different and all that. And that's how I feel about computer chess, which is it feels very intimate and naturalistic as far as just these portraits of nerds um, and, and, and similar, you know, type of people, programmers and, and, and people who are various, various places on the, uh, you know, autistic, (laughs) autistic spectrum and all that, like it captures them so amazingly well, but it also feels very impressionistic and it feels very odd. So so you're, so you're saying it's better than Revenge of the Nerds. Thank you, Jim. I I really appreciate what who is that? That was an uh American you're, Splendor. You're, yeah, you're doing American Splendor. Yeah. Um No. It's uh, there's no movie that captures this subgroup as perfectly. And I think Somebody in, needs to watch the Big Bang Theory. In and <laughs> in an era Exactly. In an era when nerds are so commodified yeah. and so everything like this movie feels so valuable. So that alone makes it just really worth talking about. But beyond that, it's so every time I watch it and I've, I've seen it three times now, it's so fascinating and weird. And I, I think different things and it, it, it sends my brain in different directions. And I don't know why they do certain things. I don't know why it suddenly changes to color film stock when they get to <laughs> – Papa George's house. I don't know when um, Wiley Wiggins, I think, yeah. is telling the story about the the AI come to life. That uh, there's that long shot or that medium shot of him at the bar, and then his legs get all stretched out and weird and glitched. <laughs> like I don't know why it does half things it does, but those are all reasons that I adore it. So, um, Computer Chess is one of the most baffling and fascinating and compelling movies I've ever seen. Um, and I adore it. Uh, I just utterly adore it. And it's one of those movies where I want everyone to see it and I want to know what everyone thought of it. Cause I feel like every single person's reaction would probably tell a different story. And I bet that if we all put all of our reactions together, <laughs> we could maybe somehow figure this out, but it would take a lot of teamwork. So That's- computer, yeah, Computer Chess is one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. I like that Patrick's getting like more quieter and more intimate as he's describing this film. As I've gotten older, I've enjoyed more personal and intimate movies. Uh, you know, like Beasts of the Southern Wild, Meek's Cut Off, Never Let Me Go. I like to be moved. I really, really, really do. And maybe that's, you know, kind of a simplistic, like, demand like just just move me man that's all i like but it's not true like i love different movies for different reasons but this is one of those movies that as it began i just could not wait to see where it was going to go just simply based on how the characters were introduced and that is short term 12 tell me about this i haven't seen it uh i think it's a it might be a first time director writer he sets his story in sort of a foster care ward with um, just very emotionally vulnerable people, uh, mostly young adults and uh, teenagers. And 
it's very similar to a facility where he actually worked himself um, as kind of a caretaker. Uh, you know, it's, it kind of goes caretaker, case management, then social worker. Like, there's just this hierarchy of people who try to attend to a person's needs. And this focuses on the, the you know, the 20-somethings who are trying their best to be there for other people and uh, have a hard time being there for themselves or sometimes the people that they're closest to. And I think that says volumes about like the power of uh, empathy throughout this movie where they're determined to be there for the other people that they're taking care of. And they see all this potential for stability and yet they can't find it in themselves. And I think that's really an interesting reflection of why people choose social work. Hint, hint, I can understand. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of vulnerability. It's very low key. It has its heart in the right place and it never comes across as being uh, sappy and schmaltzy. It's just, it's just a. It felt like a very pure movie coming from a very personal place, and I gravitate towards that shit. And it's not always sad. It's very hopeful. And when this was over, I was like, "Man, this is why I love movies. It really is. Like, I just I want to experience people that I can understand and relate to. Sure, but they also just come to life on screen in a way where I also forget about myself, and I actually become." immersed in their story and their plight and it's it almost feels like i think ebert once said that like movie watching was the greatest form of empathy like i might be paraphrasing but this movie kind of encapsulates that feeling for me and it's it's actually in my top 100 of all time and my number one well we'll get to that very soon i'm very excited to keep going here yeah what's it gonna be patrick what's your number two do we have any more uh lists or voicemails we're gonna do a nice little um montage of voicemails at the end while some music from our favorite score of the year plays i just want to keep i just want to keep going man you just want to go to sleep you just want to go to sleep partially true but we're gonna reach almost the four hour mark so i'm scared my number two is Act of Killing. Yes! I'll drink my to number that. Two is, my number two is The Act of Killing. Love it. Um, it's, it's everything. It's... <laughs> the, it's, it's everything. It's, it's... You get to see Denial in real time and you get to see oh yeah good point. uh a story about denial and and hopelessness and I, the, I mean you have to see active killing everyone has to see active killing and it's too big it's too big i've only seen it once so it's too big for me to really break off i mean other, uh, you can read reviews and everyone i mean it's all correct but it's also something else um which is yeah. to say that it can happen here, I guess. I don't know. I want, I wish that the act of killing made people question, uh, the militarization of the police in America, as much as blackfish made people question animal abuse in SeaWorld. You know what I mean? I, I wish that actually made people think about, I wish there was a national debate going on. 
I mean, there is a national debate going on right now in Indonesia, which is good. Um, this movie has actually provoked a debate in there um, about their history and what they need to do about it and all of that. Um, so this film has already done more than most films. But this can happen anywhere. This is about dehumanization and about yeah how that's hand in hand with war and about – you Sum know, up that this movie in one word, yeah. Dehumanization. You have to about questioning uh, about questioning history and, and and questioning what you've been told. And there's a moment where uh, sort of the main person we follow, uh, the main executioner we follow, he's talking about filming a scene in which he's a victim getting uh, strangled, and. Um, Um, and, and, and he says, so I probably felt what it was like to be there. And then, you know, the director, Joshua Eichbonheimer says, no, it was probably way worse for them because <laughs> they weren't acting. They were real. Oh. And it's just this, there are moments of clarity, um, by all the people involved, not just this one man who goes to you know, dry heave Ugh. on a rooftop where you used to murder people, murder hundreds of people. Um, they are moments of clarity for all involved, but they're quickly buried, and it's it's about human nature. And if you ever wondered how could the Holocaust happen, if you ever wondered how could any number of ho- like just hor- how could slavery happen, how could any number of horrific historical uh, moments in human civilization happen, act of killing is a dramatic demonstration of that. It is it's it's there's a lot going on there and it is really upsetting, but it's so important to watch. I'm I I mean I'm a uh politically the mo- the thing I'm most I would say the thing I'm most concerned about. Um thing I'm most uh, uh the thing the thing I I I I'm most uh, passionate about would be pacifism and anti-war i think war is just the worst thing human beings are capable of and i think that active killing demonstrates all of those things um war and i quite simply what's it good for thank you jim thanks no i was i was getting emotional there but you saved me good thing i'm not emotional anymore (laughs) we're gonna get emotional in a second it's it you, everyone needs to see the act of killing, and everyone needs to think about it, and everyone needs to realize that it's not that the reason active killing exists isn't because Indonesians are somehow inferior to white people, and what happened in Indonesia can't happen here because <laughs> that shit could happen anywhere, um, and that's that's something about human beings. Uh, it's very upsetting. Go ahead, Jim. What were you gonna? It's, it's, I, I, I think, I think actually real quick, I really honestly think the only reason that active killing isn't higher on every single person who's ever seen its list. Like I've seen people who list it like number 12 or whatever. Like how could you possibly list active killing at number 12? Like what, what possible rationale do you have? I think it's honestly, it's such a horrific truth that people, I think audience, I think when you watch it. There's a possibility that you will you yourself will go into denial and you'll block oh, it from your memory. Yeah. I yeah. I can't think of another possible reason. But uh at any rate. 
getting heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a fucking heavy movie, but it's it is. It's it's like so clearly. I mean, it's better than my number one movie. I just like my number one movie better because me too. It's more personal. I've never been in a war, and I've never murdered anyone, I and I've never known anyone murdered. So, Act of Killing didn't hit me as personally as my number one movie. But I can't believe this. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, in real time, you're about to experience something. Patrick and I have the same number one. I think. <laughs> really? Which is crazy. Hey, before we even reveal our number ones. Do you want to go ahead and play that voicemail? Well, hello, my friends at Director's Podcast, and Happy New Year's Eve. This is Andrew Sensimig. Uh, you may know me as the sampler from Upstream Color. And just wanted to call in for your end-of-year show and looking at things over this incredible 2013 and share some thoughts with you. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you very much for your support and encouragement of our film, Upstream Color, being able to portray the samplers been one of the highlights in my career and the film itself each time i watch it personally it just uh, continues to move deeper and deeper into my psyche somehow and this year was such an incredible year for independent film and studio film and it's very nice to see the small films being placed on top 10 lists right there against the biggest budget films out there so very exciting for that i could go on and on with the different films i love but i have to say the couple that absolutely stood out for me, outside of upstream color, of course, but I may be a little bit biased as a pig lover. Um, I look at Ain't Them Body Saints, which David Lowry's film it was just a beautiful linear piece of poetry and cinematography with phenomenal performances by their three lead actors. Uh, and then another one that just really took me by surprise was Spring Breakers. And I didn't go into that thinking it was going to just grab me and take me on that roller coaster ride the way it did. It was something they the title and the poster don't necessarily draw you into what the story actually is. So I highly recommend Spring Breakers. And on the documentary side, uh, the act of killing just killed it. No pun intended, but uh, some you know one of those rare documentaries that comes along like that in a in a in a long long time. So definitely something to see. I wish you guys at Director's Podcast a wonderful 2014, and everybody that listens in, I uh, wish you success and happiness and hugs and laughter and the ability to watch and make many, many more great films together. If there's anything I can ever do for anyone out there, feel free to just uh, drop a note my way to andrewsensenegg at gmail.com, and let's go make some movies. Happy New Year, guys. Wow. One of the key figures from our favorite movie of the year. Upstream color. Possibly the the best film about post-traumatic stress disorder since Fearless for me. Yeah. Among other things. Mm-hmm. Many things. Uh, holy shit, does this have a rhythm and a flow that I just find intoxicating. Kind of apropos for right now. Right. Um, and if you go beyond the, you know, the, the, the mind games and the pigs, and you, you can find a beautiful romantic movie about identity in here a little bit too. It's, I almost like what Sean said. 
watch it than just insert your own diatribe here. Yeah, certainly. I'm sure not everyone will walk away with this, you know, feeling the same way. But um, I I do want to say real quick to everyone who watched this and was like, what the fuck was that? How many times did you see this, Jim? Uh, twice and a half. Okay. Second, it, it, it made more, more sense the second time, right? Like, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, first this time it would have been in my like top fifteen. Now it's number one. It's yeah. It's um no. It it definitely makes it. It definitely helps a ton to watch it again. But it's so. So one of the the things about 2013 is that uh, a lot of films were very impressionist. Um, mm-hmm. Is, is uh, you know uh, upstream color, uh, com- uh, computer chess, Leviathan, um, that, you know, Barbarian Sound Studio. A lot of films were very um, they they were they were about you know creating images in your head based on little brief images on the film. Um, and upstream color is almost is clearly it's the most relentless as far as giving you a little bit of info um, and only enough info to go on. Um, and and again, these this info, it is enough info to go on. It's just you might have to watch it twice to really get that um, and to see the connections. But there's I mean, there's a million things about upstream color. I've suffered trauma. I've dated people who have suffered trauma. I've been in that exact romantic uh position it is so dead on <laughs> about just you cannot put into words what happened to you Noah, the the two characters amy amy smuts and, and shanker they do not tell each other what happened to them uh, mm-hmm. they tell each other basically kind of what they think maybe like was interpreted as happening to them but it's it's not the same and it's and and they and they get mixed up because oh God, their paths get mixed up. It's crazy. Yeah, that uh, that, ugh, that hit me pretty hard. Like, no, 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 you're confused. You're confused. You're mixing up your past with mine. I don't know. Like, it's a movie that's hard to like quantify or at least like just say okay this is why it's emotionally effective for me i think because i don't know i don't want to place that onto people be like okay even just saying like this is a movie about post-traumatic stress disorder it um you can find that but i think subjectively you can find so many other things going on um because for a person maybe who hasn't experienced some sort of psychological trauma Maybe they won't connect with it at all. Um, I think you have to admire this director's audacity, his um, confidence to tell a story. It's the epitome of show, don't tell. Oh, absolutely. And that alone deserves praise. I just, the final like 15 minutes of this movie, um, I just, I just want to applaud. <laughs> like, just. Make movies like this. Seriously. I mean, not every movie has to be this, and certainly we had picks like Wolf of Wall Street on here that are just fun, you know? But this is kind of a monumental movie for 
people who want something more from just, you know, you want to be moved intellectually, emotionally, visually. Uh, It's all here. It really is. And it might take you a couple of viewings. Um, it, It took me even just like even the first viewing, like I had to I had to sit back and process it. Uh, midway, because I was like, am I getting this? What am I missing? How am I feeling? It was like I was analyzing myself and the movie. Um, and then by the second time, I was like, this is a, this is a masterpiece. It really is. And I, I'm sorry if people kind of dismiss it or don't feel any connection to it. But uh, if you're in a certain place at a certain time, this movie will hit you. It's... <laughs> Again, I mean, but at the same time, we had that Room 237 Upstream Color episode. and um, Appropriately so. And, and I mean, Kurt Halfyard loves this movie, but he walked away with a completely different interpretation. Yeah. Um, I think Colin described it as a Richard Kelly movie done by, as told through Terrence Malick or something. Like, <laughs> I kind of like that. Like, it's, you know, it's a nice way to sum it up in terms of, Kind of a you know a obtuse filmmaker who doesn't always know specifically what he's trying to say with a, a filmmaker that's very poetic and visually expressive. Um, I think it's a very simple movie, to be honest. And it took me like a second viewing to realize that, but just sort of, I think it's 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 a perfect movie once you really really want to just let it sink into you. There's so. A lot of films I feel this year were about sort of, again, subjectivity and stuff. And it's about separating trauma from the real world mm-hmm. um, sort of baggage. Like this if, – if the same story was told but it was a rape instead of a psychological – instead of a parasite that was part of a larger ecosystem that, you know, like that had to be controlled via – you know, quotes from Walden or whatever, like, like a rape would just have so much baggage with it. And instead it, it becomes a stand in for all trauma. Um, you know, uh, and there is, there's something really, um, ineffable about, uh, and I, I've used that phrase a lot, but it's how I feel about a lot of the films I love this year. Um, there's something about, uh, the way, it feels like a larger part of something and it's not uh, it's, it's almost morally agnostic, which is to say they find themselves in an ecosystem, which involves pig, you know, like their consciousness transferred to pigs, which are drowned and the drowned pigs, which give colors to plants and the plants, which produce the worms that create more victim. Like there's something about the ways depicted as an ecosystem, as a cycle. Yeah. Um, a cycle of interconnectivity, which is like, uh, like an evolutionary process. I mean, this is a movie we could talk about for another hour, and it's it's it, you you want to like summarize it in a way that you know encapsulates your experience and gets people to want to watch it. Um, I'm certain that there are people who watch it. Who won't have the same experience? Well, I mean, I mean, it, it, there are a lot of people who watch this film. Um, they, they, a lot of people, they are like, oh, Shane Carruth, his filmmaking is very cold. Um, is there take it? Well, that's the thing. I think if you don't, 
if you don't have this experience, if you don't have this sort of, if you've never had this kind of relationship, it can feel very intellectual and distant. But for me, it's very emotional, uh, emotionally charged from the very, from every scene. Um, it's just utterly emotionally charged. And yeah, again, again, I haven't fully worked out exactly how all the pieces in this film worked, how, work. But that's okay. No, absolutely. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim and Patrick agree on the number one movie of 2013. It's, there's, there's really, I mean, go back, listen to our Room 237 uh, slash Upstream Color. Yeah. I've talked a lot about that. Um, but please, please do. Highly personal movie. Highly, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's really not enough I can say about this film. It's, it inspired me as an, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say as an artist because I hate to say to describe myself as an artist, but there is an assuredness here. And there's also a a willingness to spot the audience and say, I'm going to I'm going to accept that you guys are all smart and you will follow this. And if you don't follow this, I'm going like that's fine, but I'm not going to stop for you. Um the fact that so much of this movie is actually linear and sensical and and emotionally cause and effect it's not a completely crazy surreal thing where it's all abstract it's not an avant-garde film at all um that that moment then you realize how much this movie actually does make logical sense um it's a really it's a really beautiful moment because it opens up this world of filmmaking yeah and that's this sort of Again, this sort of impressionistic filmmaking where little bits and pieces of everything can will add up to greater uh you know, greater stories being told and uh, it's it's really hard to talk about how much I love upstream color. Upstream colors it's just far and I mean I love I mean the act of killing again, the act of killing is just the act of killing is like um the uh the movie about the uh what what's the, what was that documentary about the uh, Paradise Lost? Mm-hmm. Like Paradise Lost, blow me away because that movie is the big emotional epiphany that happens in a documentary. That's every scene in Paradise Lost. <laughs> like that's every single scene in Paradise Lost was the big moment in another lesser documentary. Well, every scene in Act of Killing is a wider, even ama- more amazing version of that. So I, I honestly do think Active Killing is probably the best movie of the year. But Upstream Color, I will watch again and again and again for the rest of my life, likely. Um, oh, my God. I totally agree. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I didn't expect us to agree. I know. What's going to happen once I see her and in Inside Lewin Davis? Who knows? We'll find out soon enough. Patrick, we've recorded our longest episode. And uh, it's probably because we have a lot to say about an amazing year in film. And Absolutely. Couldn't be happier about that. We earned uh, it. This might be, is it the best year since maybe like 2007? Yes, or, it is the best year since 2007. I agree. At the very agree. least. And I think it might even be better than 2007. Mm, yeah. We don't have a guest for our next director. What's we the next director? Paul Verhoeven. No, uh, we, have a, we have a guest. Oh, we do? Okay, cool. 
I'm excited for that. Do something a little bit more light and fun and crazy. Oh, maybe, but we're going to be looking at uh, some of his work from his original country. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's not. No, 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 no. Uh, Agent. Oh, what a uh, Turkish delight would be one of them for sure. Oh, I've never seen that. It's uh, is the films before he got to Hollywood are really interesting. I can always use an excuse to rewatch RoboCop, though. Yeah, no, I mean that that's worth, that's always worth watching. Hey, Jim. Yes, Patrick. I guess. I guess. Do we have how many? Just have one more voicemail left. Uh, I think we have two. Okay. But what I'm going to do is just add him at the end. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. I'm almost thinking of splitting this into two parts too. Really? Yeah, it's worth four hours and twenty minutes. Okay. Might be smart. Fair well, we enough. Did that. We did that with our best of and then our clip show, so Sure. Yeah. There'll be a nice little montage at the end with our favorite score of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I'll read a couple more lists if I forgot some, which is probably the case, but I'm getting tired. I understand. Jim Jim is a Jim is a sleepy little man. He needs to go to sleep. Early to bed, early to rise, make the gym healthy, wealthy, and wise. But until then, everybody, thank you for joining us in this most excellent episode. Thank you for sticking with us this past year. We were very yeah. happy to talk to you, and I'm grateful for all our listeners and fans and support and emails, and of course our amazing guests. Visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Or on Twitter at director at DC Podcast. Yeah, email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com anytime, and check out my Twitter at Instant Jim and Letterbox at Instant Jim. I met Patrick Rapol, and that's all we need. Hey, Jim. All we need uh, is love. Happy New Year, Jim. I love you. I love you too, man. Here's to 2014. Mm-hmm. I hope Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie comes out. I'd be very happy. That'd be nice. Yeah. Thanks, guys. We love you. Good night. Uh, hey, Jim Patrick. It's Thomas Rushloff. Um, doing this uh, better late than never. Going to try and do this quick. Doing a lot of long distance minutes. But um, here are my top uh, 10 films from 2013. Uh, the first one. You know, oh, hang on. Sorry. Uh, first, I want to congratulate you guys on a, another wonderful year of Directors Club. And uh, here's hoping to another great year in 2014. Um, so without further ado, here's my, uh, top ten from 2013. Uh, I didn't get to see a lot of movies. I think I counted up a total of 22. So, um, but, <laughs> uh, here's my, uh, top ten. My number ten is Captain Phillips, uh, which was really tense and I really enjoyed the second half of the film. Uh, my number nine is Nebraska, which I really liked the black and white, black and choice of using black and white, as well as the small town feel. Number eight was Spring Breakers, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, felt it was very fun and kind of weird, but uh, in a good way. My number seven was The Past, The Past by Asghar Fahardi, which is a excellent film that I thoroughly enjoyed its writing. Uh, my number six is Before Midnight, which I also thoroughly enjoyed its writing. Uh, my number five is The Place Beyond the Pines, which I felt was spectacular and well-paced, and I thoroughly enjoyed the performances from everybody. My number four was Gravity, uh, which was good. Um, I thought it would be a little better, but it was it was really good, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. My number three is Upstream Color, which was amazing, um, very subtle, and I thoroughly enjoyed all the visual imagery. My number two is American Hustle, surprisingly. Um, 
which I had a blast seeing. And my number one was Dallas Buyers Club, which shook me to my emotional core and was very brilliantly, had very brilliant arcs. Um, yeah, so hopefully this makes it through. Uh, if it doesn't, no, no worries. Um, <laughs> thanks again for another wonderful year in 2013. Uh, special thanks to Jim for appearing on my podcast. That was pretty cool. And uh, here's hoping that 2014 is another great year. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. It's Randy, and he's got his best of 2013 list. I have 25 movies this year on my best list. They are as follows, starting with number one, The Wolf of Wall Street. Number two is Eight Plan. Number three, Only God Forgives. Number four, The Maniac Remake. Number five, Ninja 2, Shadow of a Tear. Number six, Behind the Candelabra. I know it wasn't theatrical, but it was still a really awesome movie, and I loved it. Number seven, Man of Steel. Number eight, Bullet to the Head. Number nine, The Last Stand. Number ten, VHS 2, which is also really great, and the Greg Evans entry is awesome. Number eleven, G.I. Joe Retaliation. Number twelve, Iron Man 3. Number thirteen, Olympus Has Fallen. Number fourteen, Fight House Down. Fifteen, World War Z. Sixteen, This is the End. 17, Anchorman 2, 18, Elysium, 19, Warm Bodies, 20, John Dies at the End, number 21, The World's End, 22, The Great Gatsby, 23, Despicable Me 2, 24, Oblivion, and number 25, Two Guns. I also have a decent entertainment list. Number 1, Star Trek in the Darkness, number 2, Fast and Furious 6, number 3, Good Day to Die Hard, number 4, Insidious Chapter 2, number 5, The Purge, and number 6, Texas Chainsaw. Massacre 3D, which is not a good movie, but it's good for a laugh. And I have my S list, which, you know, I didn't really, well, I wasn't really impressed with. Number one, The Conjuring. Number two, The Hatchet 3. And then, of course, I have my shit list, which only had one film, and that was the Evil Dead remake. They really should have done something better than what came out. Thanks a lot, guys. Y'all are awesome. Hi, Directors Club. This is Joe Garvin in Seattle, and this past year I had the chance to see for the first time, uh, one of my favorite movies ever in a theater, uh, the 1977 Japanese horror fantasy film, Aosu. Uh, unfortunately, it was at one of those theaters that serves food, but even worse uh, was that everybody else in the audience laughed derisively through the whole thing, like we were watching The Room. Um, so my feelings ended up getting pretty hurt, and this was easily my most hated movie-going experience of 2013. Hey guys, just about ready to wrap it up entirely here, but I wanted to end on three lists that were submitted to us late in the game from three of my favorite people to talk movies with. Um, I'm going to go with my good friend Colin Suter of eFilmCritic.com, and... He chose for his top 10, number 10, The World's End, number 9, The Hunt, number 8, Mud, number 7, American Hustle, number 6, Nebraska, number 5, Her, number 4, Before Midnight, number 3, The Act of Killing, number 2, Short Term 12, and number 1 is Gravity. Um, Another great guest that we've had on the past and who will also be joining us for the Spielberg episode is Eric Childress. His top 10 are number 10, Inside Lewin Davis, number 9, Captain Phillips, number 8, The World's End, number 7, Mud, number 6, American Hustle, number 5, Nebraska, number 4, Gravity, number 3, Before Midnight, number 2, Stories We Tell, and number 1, Her. 
which I still need to see. And last but not least, to wrap up the show, one of the main uh, film podcasters out there that got me uh, inspired to make my own podcast is the great filmmaker Jay Chiel. Here we go with his list, which you can hear about in greater detail over at filmjunk.com. Number 10 is Prisoners. Number 9 is Stoker. Number 8, The Wolf of Wall Street. Number 7, All is Lost. Number 6, Before Midnight. Number 5, Inside Lewin Davis. Number 4, Captain Phillips. Number 3, Gravity. Number 2, Her. And number 1, Under the Skin, which I don't believe has come out here yet, but it will soon, and I can't wait to see that one. Thanks again for listening to our four-and-a-half-hour epic best-of-the-year show. Much love to you all, and we'll talk to you in 2014 with a lot more great movies, I'm sure. Goodbye, everybody. Sweet Jim! Hey, Jim, let me hear it to the five. <laughs> oh, my God!